Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Beke Okelina, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Nilanjana Paul, an assistant professor of history at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. Today, she'll be speaking with us about her new book, Bengal Muslims and Colonial Education, 1854 to 1947, a study of curriculum, educational institutions, and communal politics. Dr. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you uh, for uh, inviting me to New Books Network. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Let me begin by congratulating you for this beautiful microhistory. I will actually confess that um, when I got the book, I wanted to read a chapter uh, of the book in a transatlantic flight and then go to sleep and then pick up letter after my arrival. But the narrative was so compelling that I could not stop reading the book until I finished it. So thank you for this, uh, this beautiful work. Thank you. Thank you very much. So um, could you share with our audience a little bit about your research? I'm just curious um, why the focus on education and specifically uh, why Bengal? So I just talk a little bit about my background and what, uh, you know, helped me or motivated me to come to this topic. Um, I am from uh, Kolkata and I did my undergrad and master's from Jadapur University in Kolkata itself. And, you know, there were I took a class on Bengal politics and it was there that I was exposed to that history extensively. And when I moved to the United States to do my PhD uh, at West Virginia University, I was uh, curious about looking at, you know, the Muslim politics, especially late 19th, early 20th century. And when I was, you know, wanted to work on the field of education, because it was one of the most, uh, uh, you know, uh, interesting and significant areas in colonial history, And the thing is that it's not just about like, you know, um, looking at English education or the spread of education, but also the complexities attached with the spread of education among Muslims, particularly in Bengal, which had the second largest Muslim population and one of the most important provinces in British India. So that was, uh, you know, like one of my motivation to work on this. And second, when I started doing the research, like as I was doing the archival research, this kind of attracted me because it was it's such a heterogeneous community. You know, we always try to think that it's just one layer, but that's not the case. And every um, like every leadership, you know, whether it's mainstream, whether it is on the mm, like. Mm, uh, not not the main voice, they had different kinds of aspirations. 
So how that was played out against the background of frantic disbelief and colonial exploitation was something that I'm very interested. You know, I, I got interested in as I was uh, researching. So that kind of, you know, helped me to work on my research during my graduate school or during my PhD and then develop this into a book. Yeah. So um, in the book, um, you did uh, touch on this uh, issue of colonial exploitation and uh, you speak of uh, the goal of colonial education as being the control of subjects and also the restructuring of the colonial uh, society or the colonized uh, society. But at the same time, um, you also said that um, that there was this inability of colonial education to address the question of mass education. So in my thinking, I'm like, okay, if the goal is to control subjects and restructure the colonial society, wouldn't you think the colonizer would want to invest more in mass education to give him or her more uh, control? So my question for you is, why were they not able to provide mass education? So that's a good question. And that's kind of a starting point of my book, you know. And uh, the reason why I'm saying this, because when the whole idea of this this colonial education was controlling the subjects and introducing particularly English, the language of the colonizers, so a form of centralized language would be introduced. So, uh, And we have to look at the co- colonized population too. In this extremely limited structure where there were limited opportunities available, um, they wanted to learn English. Now, the question that you have asked me, whether it's like you, it would reach out to the larger mass, that was never the case. Whether it is starting with Macaulay's, you know, uh, minutes where English becomes the most important language, and even as English becomes the most important language, we, we see most of the subsidy or most of, like, the whole idea was I would educate a certain section of the population, colonized population, and then it would go down. They, in turn, would educate the larger population. However, in doing this, it never really trickled down. And I think I've mentioned it in my book, like I've shown it, it, like, you know, the numbers, like how much was invested in each provinces, uh, whether it's in Punjab, whether it's uh, uh bengal and we see that the least was invested in bengal now you could say there were other statutes or policies like the woods dispatch which was trying to bring about you know make a vernacular medium of instruction and so that you know educate larger population but the thing is that the popularity of english was so high the demand was so high that most of the money even the fact that there was a system of grants and aid which is subsidies it was so high that most of it went to schools that um taught english the source of mass education were the village schools which which i have referred to or which which was referred to as patshalas and madrasas and they received very little from the colonial state 
I mean, practically none. So the major source of education or, you know, these village schools and madrasas did not receive the kind of support from the colonial state as much support, they re- as much support the schools which provided English or, you know, um, taught English and most of them that taught English was at that point of time were missionary schools so the you know like the question is even if they were trying to or even if they if if the whole idea was after the charter act of 1813 that you know the, the responsibility to educate the colonized population rested on East India Company the reach wasn't that that large and that's why the question of mass education comes in because it wasn't uh, to that extent. And here when I'm talking about masses, I'm referring to both Hindus and Muslims, particularly the village population. Okay. Yeah. So you uh, you talk about this shift, right, to English um, education, which is said, you know, there was a high demand uh, for English ed- education. So my question is, uh, actually, I have uh, two questions um, uh, here. Uh, my first question is, why is there a shift um, to English education? We see that shift around um, 1835. Yeah. Um, so why did this shift um, occur? Because it seems like the uh, the prior policy of accommodation worked well for the colonial administration because it brought them closer uh, to the people, which made it possible for them to exercise uh, control. So I'm wondering why there is this uh, there is this shift um, to English language. And the second part of my question is, um, why is there um, a great demand? I know you mentioned in the book that most again most of this demand is um, is in the urban um, in the urban areas. Now, uh, the shift was, of course, when when Warren Hastings left and uh, successive rulers, the policy of accommodation was doing away. You know, they did away with that policy and with specifically with Bentink and Macaulay coming in, this whole idea of ruling this country, there has to be a centralized language and uh, introducing that language and controlling the subjects became very important. So, you know, it was no more like accommodating. It was now complete suppression. So that was one of the major shifts. And, you know, with making English the most important language, its popularity also increased. And also with this, what was happening was that Persian, which was, you know, the language of the Mughals and state language, that also was, you know, they, they no longer invested any money on buying Persian or Sanskrit books, which uh, d- uh, affected Muslims, you know, who were studying particularly in these madrasas. And I think I mentioned it in my book, you know, previous to the colonial rule in in madrasas, they were taught subjects like math and geometry and but once they come in, once the the British rule sets in, or you know the colonial rule sets in, there is hardly any um, support to these madrasas till the very till you know late nineteenth century when some of these um, Muslim intellectuals, I would say, um, campaigned for more support uh, for these institutions. So I think. Uh, 
the the policy of accommodation shifted to sub, you know to have control to have complete control over the subcontinent or to have sub- complete control over india and you know and the replacement of persian with english uh, was one way of doing it so that's like one part of that you know uh, part of that uh, policy of change yeah. but most of this is happening um in the urban areas, at least among the Muslim populations, um, in the urban areas, um, among elites of Muslims, they're the ones who have this uh, demand. Because you talked about the Muslims in the rural um, area being less uh, inclined to accept uh, English um, English education. Again, this is at the same time when you have... Uh, People like Justice Amir Ali, Abdul Latif, and they are all promoting uh, promoting English uh, English education. So my question is, why are the Muslims in the rural areas uh, less accepting of English education? I think uh, the way I explain it is, you know, like when you have from the late nineteenth century, when you have some of these. Um, reformers, you know, campaigning for education and support from uh, the the colonial government to uh, improve the educational situation of their community. At the same time, you know, the as I mentioned earlier, one of the important sources of mass education or educating people in rural areas was these patshalas and madrasas, which especially the one in the rural areas received very little support. Second, there was a kind of, uh, second, there was poverty. So, you know, with uh, the 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 with with the onset of colonial rule, the the peasants were impoverished. So along with poverty, because we, when you have to go to uh, like, you know, those English medium schools in urban areas, there were hardly any in rural areas. You needed to provide money or pay fees. So that, and there was also, of course, religious prejudice. Now, three combined, they stayed away from this so-called modern uh, secular education. However, there's one other thing which is important to uh, mention when I think I mentioned it in my book also, like towards the end or like, you know, towards the end of 19th century, when we are seeing these reforms happening um, and, you know, like the Muslim population was uh, was receiving some sort of, you know, so-called modern education or or were exposed to so-called modern education. Uh, what what was happening was that these these intellectuals, these reformers, were kind of unwilling to bring uh, modern education or to provide modern education to the large agricultural population living in uh, rural areas, because then that would increase competition for employment. And so th- that is also an important point that I bring out in my book. You know, like uh, how the, the 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 dynamics of depriving education to the to the larger rural population, where both the colonial government and the role that these reformers were playing, and the choices that were making, and how these decisions that they were making affected the the larger population. And the fact is that these 
masses were mostly provided with some sort of religious education which helped in hardening this form of identity religious identity what is like what you what is today in in south asia one of the biggest problems is identity politics so you know it's helped in hardening this form of religious identity Okay, so there's, um, again, in terms of this religious uh, pre- uh, prejudice, uh, this question of religious pre- prejudice and um, and identity, I know in the case of, um, um, in some parts of, um, of Africa, um, where the British um, colonized, it was the question of um, the Muslims associating uh, English education or Western education with um Christian religious education. Was this also the case in, in India? To a certain extent, yes. There, Like, you know, and initially, first, you cannot afford it. Second, it was not along the lines of your, um, you know, like of your religion. So, uh, and also because of the fact that, you know, like they are, some of the textbooks that I also mentioned it, you know, they had derogatory um, content about Islam, you know, how it was a religion of violence and it uh, deprived education to the larger population. So all these issues or all these factors were uh, responsible for keeping a larger population away from, um, you know, colonial education, as I'm saying. But as we progress more to the 20th century, um, especially post, uh, uh, I would say post partition of Bengal and the Shadeshi movement, it was becoming uh, like, you know, it was spreading, like people were becoming educated. But then also what is how, what was happening was that there was this demand for separate educational institutions. You know, there was also the rise of the Hindu revivalist movement and the colonial government in trying to cater uh, to the Muslim needs as trying to build them up against the Hindus was also uh, feeding into this. Yeah, can you let our readers, um, our listeners um, know a little bit about the Shradishim uh, movement? Oh, so this uh, developed... Uh, post uh, 1905 or you know the the partition of bengal in 19 1905 and so this movement that developed it actually you know focused on um using um indigenous products going to more national school or nationalist nationalistic schools these so there was this whole idea that um we are uh, we are going to boycott foreign goods foreign schools but it also had a very hindu revivalist symbolism which alienated a large muslim population they were unwilling to support this form of movement because and i mentioned that in my book or i discussed that in my book in ex- extensively and to show that, you know, any form of reforms that were introduced during or educational reforms that were introduced 
during the partition or the post-partition era, uh, how the Muslim reformers or the mainstream Muslim intellectuals were supporting that. And a section was supporting that. I wouldn't say everybody was supporting that. And then there was a section that wasn't supporting that. And how after the uh, re- uh, revocation of the partition, um, that group becomes stronger, led by an intellectual called Fazlul Haq. So what I'm trying to show is that I bring out through my book, not just colonial education and its impact, but also looking at these different strains within the Muslim community in Bengal and how and through, and how they interacted or, you know, how they visualized viewed colonial education in their path to progress under colonial rule. So your response just raised um, so many um, questions for uh, for me. You know, uh, one is on the partition. Uh, the other is on uh, the Hindu revival that we seem to have... Uh, um, something today of uh, another kind of Hindu re- re- uh, revival, Hinduization of um, of India with Hindu uh, nationalism, whether there are any connections between um, this period you write about in your book and what is going on uh, today. And then the politics of the, of the partition. We know there are some Muslims who oppose the partition, and there are Muslims who are in support of um, who are in support of the of the partition, right? Uh, so, could you speak more about you know take us behind the politics of the partition, and then we will come to the question of um, the Hinduization of uh, of India. I will uh, uh, you know come to the question of Hindutva or you know the rise of this right wing Hindu nationalism in India a little later, but I'll just let me talk about. The, the 20th century, you know, which I give a lot of importance in my book because it was a period there was so much going on at this point of time. There was partition of Bengal in 1905, the Shadeshi movement, which had this form of Hindu revivalistic symbol, which alienated a large um, a chunk of the Muslim uh, leadership. And, you know, so in trying to cater to their needs and you know and trying to develop muslim intellectuals as opposite to the hindus you know the 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 colonial government was promoting or supporting some form denominational education and you know they were supporting madrasas at this point of time in the sense they were coming up with schemes like the um reform madrasa where you know in madrasas you have english education so that you could be eligible for government jobs but still you know it wasn't these schemes or these policies were not successful because eventually you know as we go through the decades of 20s and 30s and uh, you know even towards the end of colonial rule we see these madrasas going back to this form of religious education and you know, that was making them further ineligible for government jobs because they were, of course, not exposed to modern, secular, so-called secular education as that was happening. Uh, So there was constant tension between these communities over what kind of education should it be. As they were, you know, like as people were getting educated, 
there was also separatism, you know, like it was also promoting a form of religious separatism. That's what I was, I'm trying to show through my book. And it's not, I mean, this is also shown through institutions, educational institutions. And one of the institutions that I give a lot of emphasis on in my book is Dhaka University. Though I have talked about other institutions, you know, even towards the end, I talk about female education and some of those institutions. But I have given a lot of significance or, you know, importance to Dhaka University and the communal politics over that. You know, how some of the... um, leaders, the Hindu leaders or, you know, vice chancellors of Calcutta University was opposing um, uh, Dhaka University. And, you know, in they were like, they it was not the Oxford of the East, but referred to as Mecca of the East. So, there was constant opposition to Dhaka University. Of course, Dhaka University had Hindu professors also. But, you know, um, among Muslim intellectuals, they were trying to bring in more and more Muslim students. So and, you know, uh, make provide more opportunities to Muslim students for higher education. But that was also a problem for, um, you know, Hindu uh, intellectuals or Hindu uh, leaders and I am also seeing you know um, like Muslims in West Bengal when the province of Bengal was divided into two East and West the Muslims of West Bengal were suffering they did not have access to the um, how do I say to the to the uh, like to the madrasas or uh, to Dhaka <coughs> always did not have access to the facilities of Dhaka University so that was also a problem. So my goal of writing this book is not just looking at the politics, but how this politics is shaping education policy, which is promoting, you know, in shaping this education policy, it is also leading to religious separatism and hardening of right to, uh, you know, uh, identity politics or, you know, um, ident- hardening of religious identity. Yeah. So, um, so we know that it, 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 it wasn't all um, elite Hindus that were opposed to, to Dhaka University. Why were there uh, or why was there an opposition to, um, to it? Or why was Dhaka University considered a threat uh, to Calcutta uh, University, given that both were dominated by Hindus? Uh, Calcutta, you know, because it was considered a threat in the sense that, you know, these intellectuals or the Hindu or the, you know, leaders, they thought that most of the funds would now go to Dhaka University. Like they would, you know, the government would start supporting that, you know, that university at the expense of this, which was supposedly the, you know, of the first university in the country. So that was also a cause of concern for them. And uh, perhaps the funding, the, the financial expenditure and uh, the support was definitely a cause of concern for them. And so, based, so you know, like I do give uh, a, a lot of emphasis on the communalization of this, this university education and um, uh, also looking at, you know, this Dhaka education, Dhaka University 
becoming one of the premier institutions and the opposition that it was facing you know like um it it's the fact that their standard of education is not as good as calcutta university it is mostly catering to muslims that was not the case of course there was a lot of special provision for muslim students there was a particular muslim hall and uh, for students uh, but it wasn't just for muslim students i mean they were definitely the um, like uh, initially they were not more in number but efforts were made to bring or you know avail it or avail those opportunities for higher education to muslims but of course that you know the support that the government was giving to or you know giving to this university was disliked by hindus yeah so it also seems like there is a a turning point right um we are um there's this strong uh, british anti imperialist uh, um position in which you know both the muslims and uh, and the Christ- uh, the muslims and the hindus you know they come together to agitate you know uh, i think i believe it was the the khilafat uh agitation which had a very universal uh, universalist um um overtone and that evolved into the non-cooperation movement can you speak about this non-cooperation movement and how that also changed where at some point uh, some of the elite muslims began seeing it as being detrimental to to their own uh, cause yes i mean that was one of those movements which was bringing these two communities together the non-cooperation movement but also i mention it you know some of the muslim intellectuals were opposing this movement because they were not about boycotting government schools and colleges i mean fazlul haq i think i dedicate a chapter on him in my book and he particularly talks about that, that you know that boycotting any form of government institution uh educational institutions would hamper the progress of the muslim community as it is they were behind hindus as it is you know the government wasn't hiring all of them mm-hmm. you know so uh, uh on one aspect we see that uh hindus you know that it, these movements were bringing uh hindus and muslims together but when these uh movements failed there was complete uh, you know communalization of politics you know there there wasn't any further progress you know there was complete breakdown of law and order and um, any form of unity was difficult uh, between the two communities and what i noticed was that you know there were efforts being made i mean of course these were small minority groups i mean students were making efforts uh they were writing about and this is like once non cooperation movement was called off you know students were making effort to write about promoting unity and you know how i mean they were writing in journals talking about that you know how colonial education promoted uh, this form of um uh you know uh discomfort or a uh, hatred to between hindus and muslims and there were muslim intellectuals um like muzaffar ahmed like you know uh, one of the important figures in and, and you know like important figures in um colonial politics but also uh, uh 
he he was this the, the communist leader who was also promoting you know uh unity between the two uh, two community uh, two communities he was an anti-imperialist but and promoting unity between the two communities so i think i touch on um, different aspects of the policies, but also I am looking at you know different voices that were coming up in terms of colonial education. Yeah. So you mentioned um, Fazlul uh, uh, Hark, and uh, one example is again uh, you just mentioned uh, how he opposed the non uh, cooperation uh, movements, even though he cautiously supported. Uh, Supported it at uh, supported the uh, the Khilafat movements at the beginning, and you actually uh, described uh, his political career as being marked with contradictions, and you gave uh, several examples of those uh, of those contradictions. This is the way um, I looked at his. Um, um, I looked at I look at his politics. Right, uh, he's been very uh, pragmatic uh, where, where in every context to see how it favored uh, uh, his goals. I mean, sometimes politics is the art of the, of the possible. Will you agree with this, um, with this um, kind of understanding of uh, Hawke's uh, 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 politics? Because it kept shifting and changing over, over time. Yes, and to be honest with you, you know, there's a lot of work has been done on Fazlul Haq. This is he's a very significant figure in um, Bengal politics, especially Bengal Muslim politics. Now, I, given the different shifts that you know in his policies that he was making, the different alliances he was making, um, and you know, like representing uh, the Krishak Proja Party, the KPP the party of, uh, you know, the party of the Jodhars and the different alliances that he made towards the end of colonial rule. But he was actually committed to promoting Muslim education. That he was there, you know, that was my goal of looking at it. You know, despite all these alliances that he's making and, you know, breaking and, of you know, the new alliances that were formed, he was committed to promoting Muslim education. And he also, of course, promoted Muslim women's education. So he was pragmatic. I would say he was democratic in his own way. Given the circumstances that he lived in, he worked within the, those circumstances to achieve his goals. And in this, he was actually making effort to promote primary education because he supported that. And, you know, different um, districts of East Bengal, whether it is Moimon Shingho where, uh, and Bogra, they were trying to um, bring about um, like um, uh, primary education. And uh, he also promoted women's education by establishing or playing a crucial role in uh, starting Lady Brabon College in Calcutta. I mean, uh, that's one of the most important colleges today for female education. So he was democratic in his own way. Given the circumstances, yes, he was he was secular. But at the same time, he wanted to um, promote the interests of his own community also. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as I read your book, um, 
one of the major contributions that um, I think your book uh, makes um, is uh, the historiography on uh, the 1947 um, partition of uh, of India. Yes, in the book, you didn't talk much at all about the 1947 partition, even though you spoke about the Bengal um, a, a partition. Can you just um, share with us more about uh, these connections? Sorry, can you just be a little bit more clear? I didn't get to that point of yours. So how does um, how does uh, your book uh, help us understand the 1947 uh, partition of India and Pakistan? Okay, thank you. Now, now I'm a little clear with it. So my my book is actually showing you, you know, this communalization of education. And in this process, you know, how it, uh, how towards the end, it was, the situation was so bad, it was so communal that, at you know, the fact is that it starts with, you know, these policies of appeasing one community over the other. And in trying to do so, Towards the end, it is such a, a difficult and a communal situation that um, it was di- it was difficult for the two communities to live together. You know, the, the the Muslims would say it's the Hindu tyranny. We don't want to live under this, uh, you know, uh, under a Hindu government because in Pakistan, though they did not know where Pakistan is going to be, they said under Pakistan, you did not have to compete for jobs with Hindus. You can have the kind of education that you want. It wasn't like, um, uh, it, wa- it was an elusive dream, but... They wanted that because the situation was so communal. And there was, of course, I mean, the, the the British or the colonial government had a huge role to play, you know, promoting this form of uh, separatism or, you know, supporting this form of separatist politics led to um, complete breakdown of unity between the two communities. Okay. So um, I'm not going to let you go without um, asking you, bringing you to a, a question I asked uh, asked earlier on uh, Hindu revival, you know, which uh, you spoke about um, earlier and how that fits into what we are seeing uh, in India today. Does, your, does uh, your book help us? How does your book help us um, understand this new Hindu uh, revival or the Hinduization of India? Or what can we learn uh, from your book? Yeah, I mean, this is a very difficult question. You know, like I feel when I was growing up, at least there was, I mean, this this communalization, rise of Hindu identity politics, it started in the colonial period, the RSS, all of these organizations. But what we see today in India is a very virulent form of Hindutva politics, which is taking over every aspect of our lives, whether it is in education, you know, uh, where, you know, secular ideals are not propagated and, you know, you have to learn about these uh, people like Savarkar in your textbooks and especially textbooks, you know, they the way they portray the Mughal or the medieval period and complete um, destruction of, 
any form of secular ideals that we are seeing today. You know, everybody, the, the, the rise of this form of um, identity politics or uh, religious, you know, hardening of religious identity, it is only giving rise to Hindu Rashtra and, or Hindu nation. And we are constantly moving away from uh, the secular ideals that our constitution laid down. I mean, 20th century, India was one of the first nation to be um, to be decolonized and achieve independence. Yes, there are several problems to the to the politics. Also, the pro- process of decolonization had severe impact on population, mass murder, rape, and you know it was just a mere transfer of power. But there was a huge fight that went on. And, you know, we were trying to become a secular nation. But what we see today is, you know, we are moving away from those secular goals and uh, which is definitely a cause of concern for uh, for the minorities that are living, you know, like they are living in fear in India today. I mean, whether it is in terms of religion or even in terms of caste and class. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, so, what are you um, working on? What What's your current project that you're so working on? Currently, you know, I've finished this book and I have to file my tenure. Uh, I have started working on female education in India. And I think my last chapter of the book was on Muslim women's education, particularly look at educational institutions. But now I have started working on just like Muslim, I mean, women's education in India particularly looking at in school education and also looking at the spread of medical education among women. Okay, I hope you will come back to the podcast when you're done with that project and uh, speak with us about the book. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Nilanjana uh, Paul. Uh, thanks for sharing with us about your uh, about your book. The book is uh, available on uh, on Amazon and on major bookstores around uh, around the world. Thank you for coming on the podcast.